Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith, and this week I am joined by Steph Harmhofer, who is a archaeologist and is doing a PhD on pseudo-archaeology. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I guess just to begin with, what is (laughs) pseudo-archaeology? That is a really good question. So, pseudo-archaeology basically refers to claims being made about the human past that are they sort of intentionally downplay and and deliberately ignore contradictory archaeological knowledge to make these claims. And they, they do this all under the guise of what Michael Barkin called stigmatized knowledge. So they all these pseudo-archaeological claims include some element of, oh, we're being suppressed, this truth is being suppressed, it's being ignored, mainstream archaeologists don't want this to get out, that kind of thing. So in short, they're kind of like a type of Archaeological conspiracy theory. Would it be fair to say that archaeology is Indiana Jones and pseudo-archaeology is the Raiders of the Lost Ark? Yeah, yep, that wouldn't be too far off. When you describe pseudo-archaeology in that way, it reminds me of uh, the way that in New Zealand there are are these groups that claim that uh, before the Indigenous inhabitants there were white people. I guess, right. Is this something you see a bit? Because I know that your research looks into the way that, uh, I guess, far-right movements incorporate pseudo-archaeology into their uh, ideas. It is, yeah. That that sort of claim is definitely something we see quite a bit in pseudo-archaeology that uh, in North America, I should specify, I'm really focused on North America, um, this idea or these claims that someone or something else was here before Indigenous peoples were here. It's a big part of a lot of the claims that we see. I guess in New Zealand, that that example, there's this idea that somehow uh, land rights can be taken away from people if you can prove that they don't actually belong to them. When you see this in North America, what's the, the sort of reasoning behind it? I'm guessing <laughs> racism comes into it. <laughs> yes, racism is definitely a big part of it. And, and that's I guess that's kind of, uh, even if it's not conscious, I should say, I don't think all pseudo-archaeologists are intentionally meaning to be racist, but the ideas that they're promoting are racist. And so it's just, yeah, it's to really kind of sever people from their ties to the land, sever them from their histories and refill it with something else. And I think the motivations for that are going to vary depending on who you're talking to and, and who's doing what. Sometimes it's 
to sell books and to make money or to make documentaries and make money. Sometimes it's just people genuinely believing and, and being really interested in the history, but maybe not quite understanding the context or getting the full context of it. So it's there's some blanks that they're just kind of filling in with what they have better access to. The thing with pseudo-archaeology is it's really popular or common in pop culture, uh, comics and movies and TV shows, because they're kind of like they're silly outlandish theories that at first glance seem kind of fun. So they get picked up a lot in TV shows and, and comics. And the books that pseudo-archaeologists put out are are so easily accessible on in bookstores and on bookselling websites, much more so than archaeological texts. So I think people who are interested in the past, in some cases, this is what they have access to. This is the information they're being told. So they start to fill in the history with that. And then, of course, as you sort of brought up there, there are also white nationalists who decide to come up with or, well, sometimes they come up with the theories themselves. Other times they just sort of adopt existing theories specifically because it undermines and promotes doubt on black people and indigenous people and people of color. So I think the motivations for why people embrace or promote or create pseudo-archaeology vary quite a bit. I was looking at your Twitter feed the other day and I noticed that you tweeted about the ongoing Atlantis discourse that was happening on the the TL. And it made me realize there really are a lot of different discourses that you're not aware of. (laughs) Uh, What's going on with the Atlantis discourse? Uh, well, you know what? It's always Atlantis is something I say. Um, Atlantis comes up all the time because it's kind of this really fantastical story that people are really interested in. And again, it's, it's popular in shows and books and documentaries. Just some people think Atlantis was real and that they're going to find archaeological proof. They're going to be the ones who find the archaeological proof that Atlantis existed. Depending on who you talk to, the Atlantis they have in mind is a little bit different. So some people kind of stick with Plato's sort of idea of Atlantis. Plato, of course, wrote about Atlantis, came up with this idea of Atlantis for uh, a metaphor. So some people stick to what he wrote. Uh, I've also seen claims that Atlantis was an alien spacecraft. And that's why nobody has found it, because it just kind of landed here, there, shared knowledge and technology, then took off and flew away again. So the current discourse about Atlantis is just involving a, a new show that was on TV. I think it was just a very short series, less than less than 10 episodes, definitely less than 10 episodes, I think. And so it's just archaeologists kind of are a little bit tired of Atlantis because it is this sort of this thing that pops up all the time. And it's, yeah, the show has just kind of popped up again, got archaeologists a little bit upset, got the show hosts a little bit upset. And that's, that is the current discourse that I was tweeting about. I guess for some of our listeners, when they think of Atlantis, they just think of, you know, a bunch of soggy blokes, but it sort of has this, it holds this place within, I guess, the occult and by extension, the, the occult far right. Uh, Could you just give us a little rundown on sort of what the position of Atlantis is within that sort of world? Yeah, so we basically have to look back to, let's start in the 1800s, the late 1800s, um, Helena Blavatsky, who was the co-founder of Theosophy, very famous occultist, she wrote about Atlantis and Atlantis's place in world history. So for those who are unfamiliar with um, Helena Blavatsky and, and the um, cosmology she came up with. There, she basically said that there were seven root races 
each root race had seven sub races. And they began many, many, many millions of years ago with this very ethereal root race, the Polarians. Uh, the Polarians became the Hyperboreans. The Hyperboreans became the Lemurians. The Lemurians became the Atlanteans. And then from Atlantis came the fifth and, and best of all the root races, which were the Aryans. Oh, there um, they are. Yep, <laughs> there they are. So Atlantis was really, this idea of Atlantis was really popularized through Helena Blavatsky. And it became really wrapped up during this period of, of intense German national reenchantment. And as time went on and the, the Nazis started to do their thing, they became really interested in this idea of Atlantis as being the homeland of the Aryans. So during World War II, of course, the Ananerbe Institute was founded to look for archaeological evidence and, and historical evidence for the superiority of the German people and the Aryans. And part of that involved looking for Atlantis, because if you found Atlantis, you were essentially finding the homeland, finding the, the history of the Aryans. And then that has sort of, that idea of Atlantis has kind of stuck within the, the far right. You wrote a piece at the beginning of the year about, uh, I guess, the January 6th riot, but also about the way that studio, pseudo-archaeology informed it. Could you tell us about what you found when you looked into that? Yeah, pseudo-archaeology was definitely, I wouldn't say it sort of really informed what happened on January 6th, but it was a bigger part of it than what I think many people realized, but many archaeologists thought. So if we look at, if we think about QAnon and QAnon's role um, in the January 6th or presence of the January 6th incident, QAnon is like this major, huge, ultimate conspiracy theory movement. And they kind of have, they have their core conspiracy theories, but they've also adopted a lot of other, embraced a lot of other conspiracy theories. And we know that people who tend to have conspiracy interests or beliefs in one conspiracy theory do tend to have beliefs in other conspiracy theories. So it's kind of when you step back and look at it now, it's not that surprising to find pseudo-archaeology within QAnon adherence. So Dylan Monroe created what's called the Q web, which was this sort of interconnected web of conspiracy theories that QAnon really latched onto. Um, and the web actually starts with Atlantis. It's our, right at the very, very front top of the, the web. And then it winds, the web map winds its way through many other conspiracy theories that have links to pseudo-archaeology. New World Order, David Icke's New World Order, for example, and his idea of these extraterrestrial reptilians. He's talked about sort of pseudo-archaeological ideas connected to those and that kind of stuff. So a lot of that appears within or has been adopted by QAnon just through these, these webs that have been produced. And many people know of when they think of the January 6th insurrection, they think specifically of Jacob Chansley, who had the big horns and the, the very bold tattoos all over his chest, is now in jail. He produced several YouTube videos. They're not on YouTube anymore. They are on other streaming services. And in these videos, he talked a lot about his conspiracy theory beliefs and, and a lot of other things. And in one of his videos where he kind of really was explaining a lot of his beliefs, kind of his start to finish ideas. He mentioned only three names or, or three people by name in this video, Corey Good, David Wilcock, and Graham Hancock. And all three of those are well-known pseudo-archaeological adherents and proponents between ancient aliens theories, what we call ancient aliens theories, which is what Graham, um, David Wilcock and Corey Good are quite involved in, and then hyperdiffusionist theories. So something similar to Atlantis, is what Graham Hancock talks about. So 
a lot of those kind of things have appeared within QAnon. When you looked at Jake, I was I was interested to see that he'd been part of the Super Soldier program. Did yeah, <laughs> what's, that, what's that all about? I, I, you know what? I'm still trying to figure that one out. According to him, the Super Soldier program is this very super duper top secret program where these, I guess, supernatural shamans sort of are are basically super soldiers, and he claimed to be one of these shamans, one of these supernatural beings, super soldiers. And he actually referenced the Captain America comics quite a bit, uh, which I think is where this idea of super soldier comes from, these people with enhanced abilities. He also believes in conspiracy theories related to Jack Kirby, who of course created Captain America comics. And yeah, they all sort of blend together to this idea of shamanism and supernatural soldiers and him sort of signifying that he was part of this program, I think, was by dressing up as this shaman, because that's quite connected to this idea of super soldier as well. So I'm still looking into that one. It's it's a bit of an odd one. I guess with that guy, I I hadn't really thought about it, but I probably had just filed him away as just a QAnon guy. He's like, oh, you know, Trump's <laughs> secret agent or whatever. And it's yeah. like, maybe there was something more going on. He might have given us some clues about that. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> you mentioned Ancient Aliens. There is, yeah. of course, a very popular TV show about ancient aliens. I can't imagine that is terribly popular with archaeologists. No, definitely not. <laughs> we, uh, I don't know of any archaeologists that I'm, you know what, though, I'm sure there are some out there, but I do not personally know any archaeologist who's like, wow, Ancient Aliens is a great show. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Steph Harmhofer about pseudo-archaeology. Could you explain sort of the this ancient aliens theory and how it might also lead into these white nationalist ideas? Right. So ancient aliens theories actually come from this kind of very long line of development starting in the 1700s, Swedenborg talking about how he could travel, he was an American spiritualist, Um, he could travel to other planets psychically and and connect with being on these other planets. And from there, it kind of passed from hand to hand to hand. And with every hand it went through something new was added to the story. It also went through Helena Blavatsky and theosophy. That's where we get this idea of the Venusians or, or beings from Venus sort of came from some of um, Blavatsky's, the people who took over after Blavatsky um, came up with this idea of, of beings from Venus. But it was really Eric von Daniken in the 1960s who really popularized this idea of ancient aliens. And According to him, it's basically, it's exactly that, that people were not humans, were not capable of building things on their own, coming up with culture, coming up with religion. So it was actually these extraterrestrial beings that came down, taught people everything they know, how to have this technology or build this technology, maybe even gave them technology and gave them all these things and then, and then flew away. And he sort of claims that when ancient, we see ancient writings about gods, he thinks that those were people sort of forgot that these gods were extraterrestrials. So that's his whole argument. And then, of course, Zechariah Sitchin added on to this, this idea of, uh, or really popularized this idea of genetic modification, that these extraterrestrials just genetically modified and created human beings. And 
there's sort of variations, slight variations on ancient aliens theories, but it basically all boils down to humans couldn't do it. It it was aliens. Right. And so yeah. especially, especially brown people <laughs> couldn't do it. Exactly, exactly. If you look at the sites that Eric von Daniken and, and a lot of the ancient aliens folks, they sort of all recycle the same sites. And within pseudo-archaeology, it's always the same sites that are coming up over and over and over again. Sites in Bolivia and Peru and Egypt and North America as well. I, it's very, very rarely Greece or Italy, unless, of course, we're talking about Atlantis, because Atlantis was seen as this pinnacle of civilization. Then it's okay to talk about Greece and, and the Romans. So they really do, these theories really do target the histories of, of Black people and Indigenous people. And when it comes to the far right and white nationalism, there's a white, he's a self-proclaimed white nationalist um, who has written a lot about Aryans and Atlantis. And he also sort of touched a bit on ancient aliens theories. But his argument was that the show Ancient Aliens is actually not describing evidence for aliens. They're they're mistaken in that. What they've actually found is proof of Aryans. Oh, of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, there's the Aryans again. One of your other areas of research is this fellow by the name of Brother Twelve. Oh, yep. Could you please tell us about him? Sure. So, Brother 12, he was born as Edward Arthur Wilson. He became known as Brother 12 or the Brother, 12 in 1924. So, he claimed to have, he was very much into theosophy, like a huge Blavatsky fanboy, writes about her all the time, writes about her theories all the time. So, he was into this idea of the Ascended Masters and the Great White Brotherhood from theosophy claimed to have this encounter with one of the ascended masters who declared that he was going to be the 12th brother within this lodge, um, this brotherhood known as, of course, Brother 12. So he started to write for some of the old occult magazines, the occult review in particular, started to really generate a lot of buzz because he was kind of had a few prophecies, almost prophecies that were getting a lot of attention. He actually got into a bit of an argument with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle in the pages of the occult review. But through this, he began to, to get a lot of attention, and he believed that he was going to bring about the sixth subrace. So, of course, I've already mentioned Helena Blavatsky's root races, the fifth being the Aryans. He believed that we were on the cusp of the, the rise of the sixth subrace. And, and that's something Helena Blavatsky had touched on as well. She also thought we are on the rise, the cusp of the rise of the sixth subrace. So he believed, Brother 12 believed that he would be the one to bring about the six subrace. Either he was going to have a kid himself or was going to adopt this, this special child. And all of this, according to him, was going to happen on the south coast of British Columbia. So in 1927, he traveled to Canada. He landed in eastern Canada first. And as he made his way across the country to the west coast, he sort of started to collect even more followers, especially folks who were already involved in theosophy, because what he was talking about was, of course, almost identical to theosophy. And he got to the south coast of British Columbia, bought whole bunch of property and and started his foundation called the Aquarian Foundation, because he also believed that we were on the cusp of transitioning into the age of Aquarius. So he was, as I've already mentioned, he was already really into theosophy, these ideas of ascended masters and, and the brotherhood. He was also incredibly anti-Semitic. He was into 
this idea of the the new world order and and Jews controlling the banks. He talked a few times. He wrote a few times in his little magazine about the the protocols of Zion, arguing that they were actually real. And he ended up he ultimately ended up annoying his disciples or. or frustrating his disciples enough that they took him to court a couple of times, trying to reclaim the money that they had given him. He fled partway through the second court case, came back at one point, tried to destroy part of their settlement, and then just after that disappeared altogether. In terms of these disciples, who were the sort of people that were attracted to Brother 12? Very wealthy people. He actually managed to collect a lot of really wealthy people who put in a lot of money for for those times, even in my opinion, as a starving student, a lot of money by my, um, by my levels, but he really collected a lot of very wealthy people, spiritualists, astrologers in particular, anyone who was really interested in theosophy, I think he actually ended up causing the closure because he so many people left theosophical chapters in Toronto, I believe it was that they actually had to close down the Toronto chapter altogether because so many people left to join him. But it really was a lot of very wealthy people. All of that money, of course, led to him having a bit of treasure. Uh, what's the story with the, the lost treasure of Brother 12? <laughs> right. So, he apparently would like to sort of keep the money that his disciples gave him because part of joining the Aquarian Foundation meant that you had to give up everything to the foundation. So, that included all of your money, sell your property, give the money to the foundation. And he apparently liked to turn that money into gold bars. And rumors have it that he hid the gold somewhere on the property. So he had the the foundation had three properties on three separate islands. Not really clear which island he possibly hid the gold at. But so a lot of people have gone to one of the settlements in particular, the one that's the most well known on DeCourcy Island. A lot of people have gone looking for the gold. Nobody's found the gold yet. So I don't really know. To be honest, I'm not convinced that there is gold, but... As part of the mystery of Brother 12, I suppose. It seems like a story that could just very easily happen today. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Yes, definitely. There's a lot of... Every time I'm reading up on Brother 12 stuff, I actually see a lot of similarities between him and, and... conspiracy theory movements today and especially with regards to like the new world order and the illuminati and he was very much like don't trust the press that kind of thing and i see so much of that in so many of the movements today that it really i sometimes have to remind myself that i'm looking back at the 1920s and not today i guess just finally what is it that archaeologists can or should do about the way that their work is appropriated or interpreted by pseudo archaeologists and the far right. That is what we are still trying to figure out is how best to approach that. Um, I think we do have a responsibility to confront that. I understand that there are many reasons someone might not, an archaeologist might not be willing to or or not comfortable confronting that. I get that. Um, But I do think archaeologists have a responsibility when we see our work being misappropriated into something really harmful and really nefarious responsibility for the communities that we work with who are actually being harmed by this responsibility for even just the discipline of archaeology. I do think we need to confront, confront it. But the question is how, how do we, how do we effectively confront pseudo archaeology? How do we make a difference? And I mean, we can talk We can try to talk to the people who are producing it. We can try to talk to show producers or authors. We're 
we're not going to get through to those folks. But I think that's where social media comes in handy. Because when we're having these conversations on social media, our our target really, I shouldn't say target, but the people that we're going to possibly make an, an impact with are the, the people on the sides who we're not speaking directly to, but who are seeing this and reading what we're sharing and maybe thinking, huh, okay, I should look into that a little bit more myself. People do like to do their own research. We know this from those of us, some archaeologists have many archaeologists, I should say, have blogs, myself included. And we know that people are doing their own research because there's certain shows. One blog I know of is about Gobekli Tepe, which is a very popular pseudo-archaeological target. They know that an episode of Ancient Aliens has mentioned Gobekli Tepe because suddenly they see a reader increase on their website. I know another archaeologist who writes a lot about uh, Oak Island. And every time certain things are mentioned, I can't remember what it is, but every time something specific is mentioned on Oak Island, he says he sees an increase of readers to his blog. I wrote a blog post about the Salutrine hypothesis uh, a few years ago, which of course is very popular in white nationalist movements. And there was a particular documentary aired that aired, and that's what my blog post was in response to. And I always know when that, that show is being re-aired because I see an increase of readers to my blog. So I think we just need to keep making information accessible and understandable because people are doing their research. But yeah, I just, we're still figuring out what is the best way. These are sort of just small steps, but. Well, Steph, thanks very much for joining us. If people want to find you on Twitter, you are at cult underscore archaeo, and they can, of course, find your website, bonesstonesandbooks.com. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, folks, that's all we've got time for. Global Intifada will be up next. Catch you next week. Nest up in the autumn branches Built from nothing but high hopes and thin air he Collected up some baby blasted mothers They took their chances And for a while they lived quite happily up there He came from New York City, man But he couldn't take the pace And thought it was like a doggy dog world then he went to San Francisco, spent a year in outer space With a sweet little San Franciscan girl I can hear my mother wailing And a whole lot of scraping of chairs I don't know what it is, but there's definitely something going on upstairs For the ladies, like Miss Boo and Miss Quick, he stockpiled weapons and took pot shots in the air. He feasted on their lovely bodies like a lunatic and wrapped himself up in their soft yellow hair. I can hear chants and incantations, and some guy is mentioning me in his prayers. Well, I don't know what it is, but there's definitely something going on upstairs. Well, I'm New York City, 
Francisco, L.A., I don't know. But Larry grew increasingly neurotic and obscene. I mean, he, he never asked to be raised up from a tomb. I mean, no one ever actually asked him to forsake his dreams. He ended up, like so many of them do, back on the streets in New York City, in a soup queue, a dope fiend, a slave, then prison, then the madhouse, then the grave. Oh, poor Larry. But what do we really know of the dead? And who actually cares? Well, I don't know what it is, but there's got me something going on upstairs. message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter.